I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999 podcast like it's 1999 podcast like it's you on the podcast like it's 1999 hello and welcome to podcast like it's 1999 the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from the side of the road here in yeah. 2019 that is a place the movie that is a place that is the location yeah. of the movie that's where it starts um i'm one of your hosts kenny nybart i'm phyllis goo and with us today we're very excited to have gideon yega Thank Hi you guys. so much for coming on this podcast. I am super excited to be here. <laughs> we're, uh, we're really thrilled to have you. Gideon's a TV so writer. in the newsroom, Manhattan, Quantico. Um, I'm going to get the last one you said. No, I'm not. Narcos. 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 Very exciting. Narcos. Um, you may remember Gideon from MTV. That's right. I don't. That's the news And I don't that. say that weird. Because I'm Where Canadian. Where were you? In and we didn't, we, didn't have, we didn't have MTV. So I, I knew that you were on there. But I have not seen you on there. So, okay, so it's like my much apologies. music, but in I, the, I know yeah. I know what MTV is. I just I just didn't like I didn't I, have access to it in okay, the same way. Man. So I feel it's, bad. It's nice to be like fifteen years past relevance, like <laughs> as a no. cultural figure. Um, Speaking of which, I'm currently on a show that I'm not kidding takes place in 2004. Okay, and we watch like when we're like eating lunch or shit. We just go up to go really? up to YouTube. And we just put on the screen like commercials and stuff from nineteen from two thousand and four. Okay, just to kind of jog our memories because it's like takes place in middle school. What's and the like, uh, what's the show? I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'll talk about it off mic. It was amazing. But um, it's it's uh, I really don't think I can say anything, um, which is like the lamest podcast move. But got to do it. No, no. But yeah, we were watching. Uh, it basically like is like a person who was flipping channels in two thousand four. 
and puts it on YouTube, and you came up. There was like an MTV um, a news break. Wow. I'm like, I'm going to know that guy in a couple of days. So, yeah. MTV, so yeah. forgive me, I'm going to ask some questions about MTV just because, sure. again, my exposure to it, relatively limited. Um, what is this MTV no, thing? What, what is the MTV? So MTV music? That's, <laughs> that's correct. Um, nailed it. <laughs> so the news portion of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, so how did how was that... Was there a half hour or 40 minutes of just news, or did it... Like, no, everybody, it, everyone listening knows the answer to this question. Yeah. Well, I'd like to fucking <laughs> know the answer. <laughs> so every, every, every hour, or 10 minutes to the hour, so we would take fun. a break, and we would do like uh, the equivalent of like a music video okay. that was okay. sort of you know news of the day, headlines okay. of the day. And so then this at, was... Like there was no streaming at this point. There was. No I'm sh- just kidding. Like this is yeah. like these are obvious. <laughs> I just didn't. I didn't know in terms of whether or not it was a, a block of MTV that where you talked about the news. That's all. There, there so, actually there was yeah, right. It was. There, and there then at the hours, end of the yeah, okay. yeah, we did at the end of the week. We did this thing called the Week in Rock, and then it had different names, but it was all kind of like. Did a you ever? Was there ever? A breaking news thing. What was the? Do you remember something that sure. you remember being like? I can't believe I'm the one that's actually breaking this. Great question. September 11th. Oh wow. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, the story. You know, the story there was. Um, I started working when I was 21, and they were. I was kind of like a real world cast member, right? Like they were looking for college kids in America to cover the 2000 presidential campaign, yeah. and it. it was more groundbreaking at the time that I had like a little and very appropriate to 1999, right? Like I used to run around with like a little one chip video camera in my backpack and film things like that. I was that guy. I saw, you know, American <laughs> beauty and I was like, Oh God, I want to do that. I want to yeah, like watch sure. a bag dance. Sure. In the <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you know, somehow finagled myself into this job shooting myself and like going on a road trip across America and talking about America during an election year that nobody really cared about until we didn't know who the president was the day after election day. Um, and I was going to get fired. I, I had gotten pulled off air, um, and I had just become a reporter. You know, I wrote a lot of copy for the other, uh, anchors and, and persona. And like, occasionally they would put me on TV if like, um, like some kid wore like a Marilyn Manson is God of fuck t-shirt and the ACLU got involved because they got a suspension. That was my beat. And, um, (laughs) but, but I would, you know, I'd I'd get into the office every morning at eight 15, eight 30, you know, check the wires, you know, coming hungover from being out the night before trying to get stories, that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, I remember getting off of the subway. There, it was a really weird day because I was coming in from Brooklyn, and then the subway got redirected underneath uh, the World Trade Center, and we picked up a huge influx of people. But I had no idea what was going on. I just had my headphones mm-hmm. on. And then by the time I got out in um, in Times Square, and I looked around, you know, the first plane had hit the tower, and I ran inside, and nobody was there um, because it was just so early in the morning, and MTV was like a place I woke up really, really late. And the the president of the network, Judy McGrath, um, who best boss I ever had, took one look at me and said, "You need to put on a clean shirt. You're going on TV. Uh, you got to report this because we're going live." And by Jeez. the time I got up to the top, called my folks, got a bunch of like cameras in my bag just in case I needed to get the hell out of there, and got down to the studio. Uh, they were evacuating the building because the first tower had fallen. And then after that, I, I mean, I was going to be fired like a day or two before because they were like, we're not going to pick up your contract or anything like that. And then after that, I, for a week or two weeks, um, because I knew how to shoot on my own and I knew how to like cut my own stuff, um, I ran the 
channel for the first 10 days after September 11th. I think oh I was like God. one of the only people that was on air and going on air. And then after that, I had an entire career. Jeez. So, yeah. That, that, that's, that a, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good answer. It's a good answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine. Well, that's the end of the podcast. Like, yeah, that was Fox. <laughs> <laughs> it's party like it's yeah. 2001. <laughs> so, so, um, in 99, mm-hmm. you're in, you're living in New York. I'm living in right? New York city. Okay. And I'm a sophomore in college. So are you seeing a lot of these movies? Are you going yes. to a lot of these movies? Very much so. So this Where'd is a good for you. I went to Columbia. Okay. Um, and where are you from? Queens, New York. Cool, just like the president. You must love him. You must be a big fan. <laughs> isn't, know, it, uh, isn't it great? A hometown boy made good. You know, Barack Obama graduated Columbia University, so I'll take that one. I too am from New York. Yeah, it's what listeners of the podcast know, yeah. and anyone who is from New York, like you, knows that Donald Trump has been a huge joke in the metropolitan area for, for our thirty-five lives. years. Our entire, lives. our entire, a joke, just the jokiest of yep. the joke. And this yeah. is this is be, this is more silly to a New Yorker than Mr. Burns becoming president. I think yeah. that's that's one hundred percent accurate and worrisome too because it's like if this thing could crawl out of the gutter and convince everybody else that like this is legit what help i mean Uh, what fucking chance this (laughs) this is john carpenter's um they live right pretty much this is yeah who it's not it's not that hard to put on a skin suit i think yeah and convince people that you're you know well a certain portion of the electorate let's put it that way 10 million people yeah i mean do you guys do idiocracy is idiocracy a 1999 it's not uh but office space is i have okay i have a take on idiocracy okay when in, in this context about how the idiots in idiocracy are far more advanced than we are. Mm-hmm. Because President Camacho may have been a dummy who they elected, right. but he was smart enough to know, in order to save the world, I should go to the smartest guy. At least he said, Luke Wilson has shown up. He is the <laughs> smartest guy in the world, and right. he's going to help us. The smartest guy in the world, Donald Trump would be like that elite, yeah. Yeah. that, that, that po- whatever, he was a loser, whatever thing he would call him, and he would probably throw him in jail. Yeah, I mean, right? yeah. Look, look, here's here's the crazy here's the crazy thing for me about that. You, first of all, you're spot on. The other <laughs> thing is, you know, as somebody who worked briefly in news, like, there's not a lot going on with a pundit. Like, a pundit is kind of like somebody that's available at two o'clock on a Wednesday to do a live hit. Mm-hmm. You know, that maybe can like regurgitate something that sounds like a like a clear cut sentence. Like, you're not dealing with the a team here. The A team is like, you know, they're doing, they're the, doing, work. They're doing <laughs> the work. Like you're doing you're doing somebody who plays the A team oh, on, on really TV. Right. And so, you know, every time it's like Heather Newart goes up for like the US ambassador, you know, like a, a talking head on Fox. I just saw that they were trying to put like the the the, the head of the Fed was just like it's he's literally sitting there eating a cheeseburger, watching Fox being like, I like that guy. That guy yeah. makes sense. Like as if the entire world w- was a game of the apprentice or a yeah. season of the apprentice. Yeah. And that's so fucking wrong. <laughs> well, it, it's it's yeah. it's it's interesting cuz it it's it's he thinks it's game recognizes game, right? Cuz he's seeing other tv personalities and thinking well they're doing this well. by the way by the way so he's not wrong he's not wrong this is how he became president and it mm-hmm. worked i th- obviously hate him with all my gut with, 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 with every ounce of my being and yeah. mine you know for about two years every every moment of my life was consumed yeah. with hatred towards this man but that is how he become president like he everyone said it he is a symptom he is yeah. not the cause. This is a symptom of what we've done over the last 20 years, mm-hmm. 25 years, really mm-hmm. since like kind of, I guess Clinton, uh, I, I would guess. say since Clinton. And then mm-hmm. I honestly, I think Jerry Springer supercharged this thing, but, um, 
That's I don't know, man. I, I blame the TV news business and its relationship to Twitter. I really do. Oh, I think really? so. Too. Like it's I agree it's with this you. weird thing where uh, Twitter the, the moment, dog. yeah, the moment yeah. that you you cut all of the guy, you know, between 2008 and it's happening again now. You know, you just you were they were just firing people in the news business, you know, left, right, and center, and like all the mid level people that you need to do that job, right? Like reporters, producers, like the kind of people that would go out and kind of nurture a story, find a story. So when you don't have those people anymore, what do you have? You have, you know, talent that costs you an incredible amount of money and then just a bunch of people scrambling around to fill content to make ends meet. So what do they do? They go, oh, something's blowing up on Twitter. I guess we better talk about that. You know, and it started with Sarah Palin, right? Like Sarah Palin would say stuff on Twitter and suddenly there would be a 45 minute block of discussion about it. But like, that's not actual news. What you need is you need people that are going out there and, and, you know, patting the proverbial hoof and digging up stories and calling sources and, Doing something that's more than just that. And so, then, what do you think that's a symptom of? I guess, like, I, I wonder. I la- understand laziness. That, well, yes, but I would also. People are watching that shit, right? So, yeah. on some level, it's. I I agree with the assessment of we shouldn't do that, but the the flip side to it is, well, people want it. So, why do they want it? Why do people want a forty five minute block of Sarah Palin? What I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for that. I'm, I'm really just I'm no, asking I, both I, of you. No, like, I, I don't know what that is. I just want to chime in about one thing regarding Twitter. I felt that for a long time. I'm basically off it. Like I unfollowed. Yeah. I unfollowed like four hundred and ten people. Only follow people I know at this point. Models off. Um, thank you. I know. I'm very proud of it. Um, <laughs> All of our followers for a podcast. Like Twitter. Nine are thrilled. Uh, but no, What's I, up, guys? I, I pretty I, <laughs> individual I, shout outs. I, I include. <laughs> People who I've met through the podcast are generally on that list. We also follow. Okay, that being said, um, the goal was to, to limit the amount of exposure I had to those type of people, the people who are um, pushing news on Twitter. Toxic. And right. yes, and yet I still get so much Twitter exposure from mainstream media. Right. Being off Twitter, essentially. I can't believe how much Twitter still drives the train. And I think it's entirely because of more or less what you're saying. I think it's laziness. I also think it's um, potentially cutbacks. I think it's cheaper to kind of talk about the conversation on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it's just the ecology, the whole ecology is kind of like, it's, it's a little top heavy and it's fucked. I mean, I think it's kind of one of those things where like, you know, you, you talk a lot about that with a lot of things in America, right? Like how do you rebuild our competitiveness in science and technology how do you rebuild a education system where you know 10 15 years there's just a lot of things that got hollowed out and i think the ecology of information is one of them you know my favorite my favorite example of that is um good night and good luck which again not a 1999 movie movie, right but it's a great movie and i think one of uh one of the things that it does so well is you see how a story breaks in a local newspaper and then is utilized by broadcasters to um, advance that, you know, basically pick up the battle flag and, and advance that and make it a national issue because they feel like this tiny little story becomes emblematic of what it is that we're dealing with at a country at that time. Um, we used to have this ecology of local papers. Yeah. You know, we used to have this ecology of, of, of reporters that were doing um, – good information that then broadcasting would would take and create a broader exposure out of or they would you know be able to get sources to talk on camera or you would do like these frost nixon style like incredible interviews right and that that's how it would advance that knowledge that's how it would advance that story um but a lot of those local papers you know and those local wire services again have been all hollowed out and uh, and and disrupted for lack of a better term by the internet and nothing has come in to fill that gap except for twitter 
Um, so what you so get for a is a pile of garbage, a distortion field. Yeah, yeah. a literal distortion field. Yeah. So uh, I mean, what's the answer to that? I mean, you know, can you force private equity out of like uh, wire services and newspaper stuff? I mean, I guess you know they tried to do that in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, can you create a nationalized alternative? Like, I'm a big fan of the notion of what the BBC does in terms of like doing a. Uh, mm. um, how, but how scared would you be right now? I wouldn't if, if it was completely independent. I, yeah. Okay. That's a big if. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. I, I don't know, man. Like you look at look at look at Harvard or ProPublica. Like you just mm-hmm. basically you create an endowment, mm-hmm. you know, and then you say, uh, I, I'm actually, and I'm not even opposed to regulation, right? Like the, what did they used to have the fairness doctrine, where like mm-hmm. you, you used to have equal time, and then that's the when Reagan annihilated that. You got right wing radio. Like why not regulate? Yeah, I I don't. Uh, it's. I think that the 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 overwhelming sensation I feel on a daily basis is just it feels so unwieldy to me. Like I don't even know how to wrap my arms around any sort of a solution to the just the noise that we're bombarded with on a daily yeah, basis. Stay out of it. I mean, yes, but sure, I, and that's fair. I, I guess I just it's it's very interesting to the reason we do this podcast. I think. At least one of the things that we love about doing this podcast is it gives whatever, us whatever op- you say. I agree with. So go ahead. <laughs> is is that it's an opportunity to get in a time machine a little bit to yeah. be able to to look at a at a, at a time when um, the, the millennium, you know, the Y two K was one of the biggest things we had yeah. to worry about. Um, it was just it was and and the, the the breadth of movies that were made is just shocking. And today we see a media. I mean or at least movies specifically, television seems to have filled that void a little bit in terms of yeah. trying to sort of give us the the character pieces that were you know similar to what something that we were about to talk to with Jesus' son yeah. in terms of just a richness, a messiness. Um, you know, I, I, I saw, as I was watching this, it felt in its own way like I would have loved to have seen an HBO miniseries based on this. Yeah. You know, I mean, it had a very episodic vibe to it, but in the best possible way, it had this sort of shaggy kind of quality to it, which we just don't see today. And... I don't know. I, I I I try not to plug into all of the the politics of what's going on right now, um, if for no other reason than because it does feel toxic. But I also right. can't be completely disengaged from it, or then I feel like I'm just sticking my head in the sand. So it's it's kind of this. Yeah, this it, podcast gives us, I think a reprieve from it yeah. in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think uh, uh, yeah, I think when you asked me, uh, yeah. you know, which one of these did I, did I want yeah. to cover and like, did I want to take a look at, I mean, I think the reason that I picked this one is because they don't make movies like this anymore. And <laughs> it felt like such a gem from a crop of independent cinema in the nineties, you know, that, um, there were just so many exciting filmmakers and exciting actors and like perfectly self-contained little tonal mm-hmm. pieces that um, I just wanted to show some love. I love, oh, I, yeah. I, I really have, I really love this movie too. I think I had watched it. I remember watching it in college because it's, it's the kind of movie that was on TV a decent amount. You sit around with your friends and watching it. Yeah. I didn't think it was particularly remarkable back then, but I think it's pretty remarkable now. And one thing I was struck more than most movies we do, mm. um, and it's a pretty hacking thing to say, but I, I do, I think it's, I think it's more, it was more apparent in this movie is how this, these stories can't happen today. So not so much yeah. like this kind of movie doesn't get made for me. It's like you give Billy Crudup's character a smartphone and this whole movie right. doesn't happen. Not in, not in that like, you know, typical writer's room way of like, 
I wish I didn't have a smartphone so that you wouldn't know where, like, the villain was. Not that. Like, very simple, like, GPS shit. Yeah. Like, would have destroyed this movie. Um, and Agreed. everyone in the country has a smartphone. It really has, you know, there's really no barrier that, you know, there's no socioeconomic barrier now. Um, so that I really felt Can I like, just tell you my yeah. one Dennis Johnson story, which sure. is Please. exactly yeah. on that. So I went to go hear him talk years and years and years Dennis ago. Dennis Johnson wrote the Dennis Johnson, the, the author yes. who wrote book, Jesus' yeah. Son, the, uh, uh, seminal short story collection. Um, probably one of the best things written in the last 50 years in America. I have not read it just to be above board. I hear it's amazing though. It's, you know, um, it's, it's a really lovely self-contained little piece. It's like the movie. It is, um, poetic and impressionistic, but it was funny. He was giving this talk at BAM and I went to go hear him and he was talking exactly about that. He was talking about GPS. He was just on a tear (laughs) about how the pleasures of getting lost and the romance of having to figure that out and where you were was something that he really resented. So you're, you're spot on. You are channeling the, that's really, really interesting. That, first of all, that makes me feel great. Um, so most importantly, <laughs> one point for me. Uh, secondly, there, there, are a few, there are a few moments in this movie, specifically the, the one I referenced in the beginning where he's literally on the side of the road looking for anybody to pick him up. Yeah. The other movie with the little piglets. The other yeah. part with the little piglets. Cool. The whole Jack Blackie thing yeah. felt like, oh my God, if this happened today, this this would be over in half a second, yeah. right? Or the side of the road, there'd be an Uber. And all these things that, like, I, I'm not the kind of, I'm not at all the kind of person who says, like, stories back then were better than now. There's a story in getting lost and having an Uber. I get that. Right. Like, of course. But this specific thing that they were doing in this movie in almost every one of these little episodes that are actually sped up with those interstitials, I'm sorry, split up with those interstitials, um, only can take place from about 1970 to about 1995. Yeah. Right, and come around ninety five, maybe ninety nine, but like this movie takes place what in the mid in the seventies, early seventies, early seventies, yeah, seventy one, seventy two, I think. That kind of thing, the, the and I love the uh, the the notion of the, the romanticism of it because I do like romanticizing shittiness. Yeah, I like that. this movie. Does that? Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> uh, especially with the music, the soundtracks. Yeah. Oh my god, oh, incredible! It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, and the Samantha Morton character also yeah, feels like the kind so... of person who only existed before does not exist today because yeah. that person has a smartphone in her hand today. Right. Um, Boy, yeah, the whole so, the, 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 so the whole aesthetic of this movie really worked for me. It's 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 a really. I saw it in '99 as well. Yeah. Um, at the behest of a friend of mine, uh, Scott Casuccio, who uh, I don't know how he found out about it. I don't know why, but he forced me, not forced me, but he said I should sit down and watch it. I think I watched it on DVD. Um, I don't think I saw it in the theater. And I remember thinking at the time that it felt slight to me. Right. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't really lock into it. I think that it has a very sort of, it has a meandering story, and I just, for whatever reason, it just really didn't connect with me it's, in the way that... It's way more resonant today, today than 100%. in 99. 100%. Yeah. I sat down to rewatch this film and was immediately pulled into it. Now, it's a headspace thing. I was 19 then. I'm, right. I'm, I'm not 19 now. Um, there's, it, it there is a, an ocean of, of movies that are made that are not like this. So the fact that I was, I was, it just felt like a breath of fresh air to me yeah. sitting down to watch this film. I was like, this is yeah. great. It also reminded me that Billy Crudup used to be fucking great. You know he, what I mean? Yeah. What and, a star. And, and, like just this performance should have been a star making performance. You know what I mean? And, and, and almost famous obviously comes out shortly after this. Right. Um, Hollywood doesn't get him. They don't, they well, never got but they also turn on because of the theater, whole Mary Louise Parker. New York theater all. got him. I mean, I, yeah. I saw him for the first time. He was a Septimus. Hodge at the 
uh, Mitzi Newhouse Theater doing Tom Stoppard's Arcadia in 1995 or 1996, yeah. mm-hmm. and you just knew right then and there, like this guy was. He's got something. He's got something. He really does, and and he's. You know, he comes off of Almost Famous, and it just, it never really happens for him in Hollywood. For yeah, I imagine That a was a bad role for him. Almost Famous? He might have been great in it. He that, is really good. He might have been great in it, but this is my feeling about Billy Crudup after watching this movie. He's got a high-status face, he's got a high-status body, but he plays low-status characters much better. Interesting. Um, he was also kind of playing the same character, what, like three movies in a row, right? So yeah. he's Steve Prefontaine, 1970s, mm-hmm, an alcoholic, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. right? Almost then famous. he's, yeah. yeah, then he's, you know, fuckhead, you know, a heroin <laughs> yeah. addict in Iowa yeah. City, 1971, and then that's he's, you know, I'm a golden god. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a really good point, because I think that, I think Colin Farrell has a similar thing, too, which I think he's I actually- Much better low-status character. Yeah, but much he, better low-status But character. he is low-status, he's also bumbling. He plays bumbling really well, He's whereas funny. Billy Crudup plays desperate really well, yeah. lost, confused, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, out of place. And the thing like that, I, I love Almost Famous, like everyone else who's ever watched the movie, um, but I think that that did bad things for Billy Crudup's career. I think when you play the lead singer of a big band like that, has the I Am a Golden God moment, the yeah. the. the Inclination is to put him in more leading roles like that, and he got put in a lot of shitty leading man roles because of I agree. See, with that. I have a totally different. I have a totally different read on it. I actually think that this movie is a murderer's row of character actors, and I think it is what was so great about all that '90s filmmaking is that you gave non-traditional leading men and leading women the opportunity to carry films. And that this, when you think about everybody who's in this, from Holly Hunter to Dennis Hopper to Michael Shannon to to Samantha Morton to Dennis Leary. To Artie Bucco. Yeah, to Artie Bucco. That's right, as McGinnis. He's so good. good. And uh, Miranda July. Miranda July's in it. Will Patton's in it. Boris McIver's in it. Like, there's... there's, crazy. It is uh, packed with talent. I agree with that, of course. Jack Black is yeah. in it. As Jack Black, like, doing as, the Jack as Black dance. Like, this is his, the beginning. Yeah. This is, no, like, post-high fidelity. Of course I agree with that. I, I think that, and I think that's a really cool thing. We have seen that in a few movies. Happy yeah. Texas kind of comes to mind. Yep, yep. That's right. another movie that had a bunch of, like, really strong actors who wouldn't necessarily yep. carry a film. Indie cinema is in a really interesting, in America, is in a really interesting yeah. spot in My only point with Billy Crudup every is... One of, but that's the, the, the crazy thing, is if you look at this movie, every one of that cast, almost every one of that cast, is now the star of or top four on a call sheet of some incredibly seminal piece of golden age of TV TV, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Mike Shannon in, in Boardwalk Empire, sure. Holly Hunter in Top of the Lake, sure. of course MacGyver in um, uh, 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 House of Cards, yeah. um, Dennis Leary in Rescue Me, you know, it's, it's, um, I feel like Billy Crudup has got to be like in conversations constantly for some sort of cable streaming show. Well, right? I, what I said last week about him is <laughs> yeah. I think that the I, I, having not yeah. having not seen this in years, yeah, I said the kind of movie and the kind of show that Billy Crudup would be the star of are the kind of shows that aren't really getting made or aren't really yes, high. You did say but that, I'm yeah. wrong, okay? Because after watching this, I think Billy Crudup could play. A far more interesting, layered, low-status, yeah. desperate kind of guy, I, potentially in a period piece, uh, that would be a great show these days, right? Yeah. He is on a show. <laughs> I just realized he's on the, the Apple thing. The, uh, oh, the morning the show? The Reese Witherspoon thing. He's yeah, that's the, right. That's he's right, on that's that, right. He's oh, in that cast. That's not what I'd want him to do. No, it's not what I would want him to do. <laughs> so, but I, no, I'm just I'm speaking to the yeah. fact that he, he is on a show, but I, I, I agree. Well, I think the other thing, you know, the other thing about this that you know, it's, you know, you talk about him playing dirtbags. Like, dirt what bags. I remember most about 
this movie was that it was like number 10 in a string of 1990s heroin movies. Yeah. You know, that were kind of like the equivalent of what a grunge band was to cinema. (laughs) So it's like you had train spotting, you had basketball diaries, you had like uh, gridlocked, you had rush, you had, um, a lot of them. You had a lot of them. So is heroin movies the, Best genre of movies? <laughs> <laughs> I've watched Rush pretty recently. I fucking love that movie. I haven't seen yeah. it in a while. Yeah, Jason Patrick. That's another one. Another guy. That's yeah. another guy that kind of... But it was... It, they you know, kind of look a little bit alike. I, Here's, think, I think Jason Patrick's is, is not Billy Crudup. I don't think he could do what Billy Crudup does. Yeah, and I think he's I like the, the bad version. So, I agree, yes. yeah. No offense, Jason. No, 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 no. I mean, if you're listening, <laughs> please send all comments, too. <laughs> yeah. um, but, like, I think... One of the reasons that this movie got overlooked was because at that point it was kind of a trope and a cliche, right? Like you were going to watch a bunch of people, you know, in vintage 1970s gear, Mm -hmm. you know, shoot up and look really sexy doing it. And what got overlooked is the tremendous humanity and spirituality that is part of this story that is so redemptive and so daring and so empathetic. Yeah. Um, I, I can't think of a movie that treats drug addiction or addiction with the same level of like fully formed humanity outside of, I don't know, days of wines and roses, Mm -hmm. maybe panic and needle park. Like it's love panic and needle. It's, it's so, there are just so many gem lines in it and moments that, uh, I think, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, uh, the the comedians have have kind of eaten all of the lunch of of drama in cable television now in terms of the character work that's out there. But what I think they what you, what you say when you know when when people say that is it's there's just a lack of empathy that I think drama sometimes treats its lead characters with. And this is a perfect case study how if you're going to do a drama and you're going to do it about something serious, you know, how you treat these people as human beings, complex human beings, how you can mix humor with poignancy. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and Alison McLean didn't work for like 10 yeah. years. Yeah. I, don't, I would love to, I don't understand that. I mean, I don't know yeah. what that's, what that story is, but seems to have happened to a lot of female directors. who made does. a lot of really good movies this year. This it is the does. third one I can think of because, um, uh, who was, uh, uh, Antonia Byrne bird third. who did yeah. ravenous, ravenous almost yeah. never worked after. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Alison Andrews who did gas food lodging. Yeah. She never really worked. Um, again. you know, the woman, Risa Garcia who yeah, did, did 200, 200 cigarettes, cigarettes never directed another movie. Yeah, it it does feel is that like Harvey Weinstein just being like a total like is that was there know. just gatekeepers that basically I think is that institutional sexism? I what think, is, that's I what think I think it is because I, I think that sadly I, I think it that. seems like I think every female f- filmmaker has said this. I I think I think it seems like you have to hit a home run in order to get another movie as a woman. Whereas as a man, you make Jesus a son, you're probably directing the next Marvel movie. Right. Yeah. So it changed a little bit. I mean, Chloe Zhao is doing a Marvel movie now yeah. off the Rider. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a critical home run and commercial. No one even noticed it, but right, right. That, yeah. we're talking about twenty years later. So. It's, it is interesting too, because like how you nineties independent cinema <laughs> women, especially Alison McLean. Alison McLean. It's also like how do you define home run? Is the is other thing too? Right? Like back, th- it's got to be is, both. It's got to be. It has to be successful critically, yes. and it also has to be successful commercially. That's the thing. Which is, I mean, nearly impossible. You know, I mean, think about how many movies that do that on a regular basis. It's crazy. I mean, it's such an unnecessary bar that they've set. A movie, as you know, I despise Forces of Nature was directed by a woman too. 
I think that's a critical disaster, but it was a commercial success. And, and she still didn't, didn't get, get work. She didn't get any work off that either. Yeah, that's crazy. So you really had to knock it out. I mean, we, Kimberly Pierce, right? That's another yeah, that's another, another one. Another yeah. one that like took her a long time. Took her a long, long time. time yeah, and that's a critical, you know, and an, an amazing sort of. Yeah, there's a lot that rhymes in this to "Boys Don't Cry." There's a lot that rhymes mm-hmm. in this to like, I think, gas food lodging. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a, um, uh, yeah, someone should do a retrospective on that, like naturalistic filmmaking with this bizarrely elevated emotional yeah there's a poetry to this film which i think comes from the comes from the book in a lot of ways but just it's it's immediately arresting in the fact that you just kind of have never seen anything like it him on the side of the road the car accident that beautiful line of voiceover that he has after he sees the woman screaming after she hears about the news in the car accident it's just it's it's really it's it's vivid and dreamlike and nightmarish at the same time and and rambling in the way that I mean I've never done drugs so I can't really speak to to that. Well, allow but. me to fill you in. <laughs> they nail it, my friend. They fucking nail it. So I'm I, gonna. I'm gonna I, be, I want to say one more game. thing in terms of nothing like it. There's one filmmaker that I kept coming back to, and oh, it's, weird. it's I don't know if it's obvious or whatever, but mm-hmm. I kept coming back to Scorsese. It kept feeling like. It exists somewhere in the middle of bringing out the dead. Mm-hmm. Yep. After hours, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, a mean little bit, streets. a little bit of the Mean Streets, Goodfellas Casino thing. Yeah. Um, and the way they use music, and the way it's shot, and the early morning stuff, in the 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 way humor is used in this movie. There was, it felt a little bit like a Lost Scorsese film. I, now he would never do anything narratively like this. Yeah. Or right. Structurally like this. Right. Which. Although it's bringing fun. up the dead is a little, we, as we as when we episodic, did, it true. is very episodic in in nature and does have a some. It's far more hardwired in in story to a certain extent than this is. The filmmaker that I thought of actually watching this film, which might maybe come as a surprise, is Harmony Corrine. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not a bad one. Like, there's a like, little bit of that. Yeah. You know, I think that's because the production design team and the um, costume design team came from Gummo on this one. Oh, really? Well, yeah. that makes that so makes complete sense. Like a, that makes absolute sense because it, yeah, it has yeah. that. It has a bit of a grimy vibe to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a dirtiness that, and again, I'm not. I'm not the biggest Harmony Korean fan could, in the world. It, it could be gross, yeah. but but it could be it could be gross. Because I would say the one thing Gideon about nailing it is it's not nearly as gross as I think drugs act like living like that actually is. But of yeah. course not. You just don't want to show like the leeches. Requiem for a yeah. Dream goes there. Requiem goes there. The Parts of Train Spotting goes yeah. there. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. This movie doesn't go that far. Although there is a there is a sadness and a melancholy. I'm okay in this with film. it not going that far. Yeah, no, no, like I, the, I am too. I'm sure the gummo team was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why I, isn't there a kid in a bathtub eating yeah. spaghetti? No oh, god. <laughs> I think you know it's funny because my immediate associations with this weren't with filmmakers; they were with photographers. And oh. I thought what she was doing that was like so inspired was she was making a movie that looked and felt like the best of Nan Golden and the best yeah. of William Eccleston. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, she kind of nailed that, the way that she shoots interior spaces, like mm-hmm. the moments of intimacy in between oh, yeah. Samantha Morton yeah. And, yeah. and Billy Crudup, who have this, you know, fucked up, dysfunctional romance, but it's real and it's yeah. human and it's full of need. Um, it reminds me so it, much yeah. of, yeah, of all those Nan Golden photos of like. And shades of, for me, Eternal Sunshine. For yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah. that's. I think that's a great. Well, I think definitely in the the fractured narrative of it, their relationship definitely has that. We're popping in on 
FH and why am I forgetting her name? Fuckhead. Michelle. Michelle at different times on this timeline. Yeah. <clears throat> it has that, it has the, that vibe. It's the, the Eternal Sunshine thing to me was always like, um, dysfunctional relationship that at its core works. Right. And mm. that's how I felt about this. Like at its core, these two are better together than they are apart. Even though it's yes. dysfunctional yes, and I it would, can be really, you know, borderline abusive at times. So, um, they're, they're somehow a rock for each other. Yes. In a way that is, uh, you know, heartbreaking as well. Well, there's that one line that he's got very early in the movie that I remember, you know, really stuck with me where he was talking about, you know, the basis of the friendship that he has with those two guys, you know, yeah. when he first meets Michelle is that they knew that there was something wrong with them. They just didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I think that that in a weird way, I think if you talk to a lot of people who um, have struggled with addiction or depression that, or depression, uh, or, you know, yeah, mental health issues, borderline personality, anything that you could say, oh, you know, half a dozen of these characters fit that profile. Um, that is what it is. And, you know, the culmination of the movie, obviously, when you wind up in this, you know, uh, uh, old folks home, you mm-hmm. know, and he describes it as this, you know, kind of waiting room for heaven, of mm-hmm. island of misfit toys, and that you make peace with that, you know, that's that's the full journey for that character, mm-hmm. is that people who are, I think cannot find a name for or cannot find a way to get around whatever this force is that's greater for them than themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I was going there somewhere and then no, I lost no, no, the thread. No, it's, well, to I, me, I, I mean, because I was drinking last night <laughs> to, to, to our <laughs> listeners. To me, I think, um, what this movie kind of lands on yeah. is how important it is to have a purpose. Yeah. I just, I, that's what I struck. Mm. It's just struck me at the end. Oh, Something greater than yourselves. I love that he ends up in the old folks home. I love that he kind of finds a home there. Mm-hmm. Um, and how important it is to have a reason to be every day. I think that I, th- I think that's what fuckhead was struggling with for the majority of this film is where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Who wants me? Um, who do I want? That kind of stuff. And I think he finally did find something yeah. that anchors him. I, I fully agree with that. I, w- I will also I'll play devil's advocate and also say, just based on, on Dennis's thoughts on, on getting lost, mm. I think this film is also about the beauty of being lost. About sort of the maybe the bound, imp- ping ponging around the world, of being, of being the importance, lost at some point. And, and, yeah. yes, and 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 how important that is in order to find out who you are, in order to get yeah. to your destination. But I think there is some beauty uh, and messiness along the way. Um, but you get to see some, you see some crazy shit along the way, like yeah. a, like a naked woman uh, from Paris a parish. Paris like, yeah, that's my that's wife. My wife. <laughs> that's my wife. And it's so wistful. The line greeting, by the way, like yeah, and and you know, and and the fact that like the the purpose of that story with the naked woman is so you know the the part that for if you're listening, if you haven't seen this movie, there's this wonderful little <laughs> vignette uh, where Dennis Leary plays a guy named Wayne. Uh, in like the world's greatest shearling jacket. And, uh, you know, the whole point of Wayne as he kind of comes and goes, uh, in, in Billy Crudup's life is that he's going to a house that he used to live in with his wife that was foreclosed yeah. on yeah. to strip it for copper that they can then sell for drug money and, uh, and, and for booze. And that it is described as the greatest day in fucking <laughs> forty dollars, forty five dollars, and um, and all, but more than that, that like there was a feeling of satisfaction and purpose because they had done work, yeah, and that he had seen a yeah. friend, and that it was amazing, and it's it's shot, you know, you talk about mean streets, right? Like that that wild, ecstatic, masculine energy 
uh, TM, um, <laughs> you know, that you kind of see in that movie. You know, it's just, you know, you see it between these two guys, just celebratory, and it ends with Dennis Leary overdosing and Fuckhead almost overdosing. Yeah. And yeah. the thing that saves Fuckhead that doesn't save Dennis Leary is that he's got love he's in got his Michelle. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, and that to me, I mean, you know, that split that. screen is so is, <laughs> yeah. is, is impressive. It's unbelievable. I'm going to give the synopsis real quick. Sure. Uh, set in the early 1970s, Jesus' Son is a series of linked yet discreet stories that chart the to hell and back journey of a young man known as F.H. Fuckhead. Uh, told in told in the way a person might recount a series of anecdotes over a drink with all the mistakes and exaggerations, false starts and shuttling back in time that inevitably occurs. It is a stunning glimpse into one man, sorry, into the way one man's heart and mind work. It's a little, a little editorializing there from Google. Google. I mean, it's, it's Google. I mean, yeah. uh, Jesus Sun premiered. It's the internet. It can't be. Wrong. <laughs> it can't be right. uh, Jesus Sun premiered at the Telluride Film Festival on September fifth, nineteen ninety nine, and got a very limited release, making one point three million dollars worldwide on a two point five million dollar budget. Jesus Sun has eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, eighty two percent from audiences. Um, I think it's interesting because Ebert's review starts with something that you mentioned earlier. Uh, he says, "Thinking at first, I am seeing still one more road movie about a druggie. I find I am wrong. Jesus Sun surprises me with." moments of wry humor poignancy sorrow and wildness it has a sequence uh, as funny as any i've seen this year and one as harrowing and it ends in a bittersweet minor key as it should because to attach this story to a big climax would be a lie if not a crime like all good films it's not for everybody only bad films are for everybody some will complain that the episode episodes jostle too loosely against one another um uh, it's a barbiturate driven version of Pulp Fiction in which the guns misfire and the cars don't have brakes, writes Salon's Andrew O'Hear in a negative but somehow affectionate review. I think short stories are right for a story about druggies. They li- their lives are too episodic to add up to a novel. The highs and lows settle into disconnected adventures and anecdotes separated by voids and blackouts. Um, the movie is not just about F.H. and Michelle. It's episodic and there are moments that stand out like sharp memories in a confused time. He loved the movie. He gave it, uh, I believe he gave it four stars out of Eber? Uh, four. Way to go, Roger Ebert. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was on his top ten list in either this or, you know. It might have been the next full year, Full disclosure, how- this movie had its theatrical release in 2000, but for our rules, but it was- this had its world premiere in 1999, and yeah. it's an American movie as its world premiere in 1999. It is a 1999 movie. <laughs> um, I feel like so. it's so appropriate for this movie that it just ekes in under the yeah. water. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Technicality, that's right. On a technicality. The Virgin yeah. Suicides rule. The first suicide rule. Uh, the the thing that that almost immediately hit me was how beautifully shot this movie is. That oh, first God. shot of the the blurriness around the edges, the the magic hour of him on the side of the road. Yeah. This that the, the literally the fire of those of those headlights. It almost feels like they're on fire. Like it's just. Can I ask really you something? As writers, we're all writers. Sure, sure. Do you feel guilty writing magic hour into a script? Knowing that, like, production's gonna, gonna want to fucking kill you. Yeah, knowing how, like, production is gonna be, like, living out a razor's edge trying to get what you're trying to do. Yeah. Well, on Quantico. Um, <laughs> Did you write a lot of magic hours? No. I, I, I don't think, I don't think I've ever been able to catch magic hour on it. Uh, everything I've ever worked on. No, that's not true. Manhattan, we did um, a fair amount of shooting against it, but that was all Tommy Chalami, like shooting against the desert sky. Sure. Uh, I don't think I've ever fucked with that because I was too worried. <laughs> Me neither. What would yeah. happen if I even tried? I, I desperately want to because it looks the best, but I just, I, best. I've been on sets when we've been trying to catch that moment and it's so stressful. It's awful. Yeah. Um, that I, I would never put it in. Well, cause it's, I mean, you're maybe you're lucky. I was directing. I mean, I don't even, know how how long said scene is but like 
I mean, what are you, five minutes maybe? If you're lucky, you get one take you at it? You get like 15 minutes. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Do you know if they actually shot, I don't know where they actually shot this. Did they shoot I don't this know in, where they shot this Iowa? either. Um, I can try to find out though. Um, because they have a little of that Terrence Malick thing, right? Where like yeah. you get, you know, oh, when totally. there's nothing blocking your sky, I magic thought it was hour Arizona. Like Am I hours crazy? Three hours. Yeah, there's there's definitely stuff in Phoenix, right? Because hmm. you get those last exterior shots that are very clearly. I Arizona. was watching the um, the Elizabeth uh, Holmes thing last night. The, so much ar- the yeah, yeah, the event yeah, yeah. so much Arizona. I can't remember if I'm conflating the two. It is shot in. Various regions of New Jersey and in Saskatchewan and in Tucson, Arizona. So those are there are seven locations: Riverside, Vineland, oops, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, Pittman, New Jersey, Gibbstown, New Jersey, and so uh, this yeah. is a New York crew. This is a this fifty is, mile out. Yeah, I have yes. never heard anybody shoot New Jersey for anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's well, not. I'll a, say yeah. this: she looks great. In yeah, it's it's, it's really beautiful. Underrated state. I mean, the, the the actual natural physical beauty of New Jersey. There's a yeah. reason it's called the Garden State. There are regions that are just so gorgeous and no one ever knows because you just think of Newark or Armpit or whatever. You yeah, think yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the other filmmaker that I thought about as I was watching this was Gus Van Sant. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? I think That's this is. A, I think this is a better yeah. version of like Drugstore Cowboy, which I don't think is a great movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I liked it when I saw it. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? I'll agree with you. And again, it it goes back to my same central conceit, which is that you're you're treating these as human beings, Mm -hmm. you know, with um, ambitions and mistakes and uh, hopes and dreams and loss and grief and all of the emotion that is part of the human experience, as opposed to this is a novelty. You know, this is a I'm I'm doing an almost anthropological case study. Totally right, right, right. And and to your other point, I believe that was about ten years prior to this movie. I think it was eighty. 889 Drugstore Cowboy? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of on the front end of it, and this is kind of on the back end of it. It's it's a it's a, it's a more difficult or a tighter kind of needle to thread. No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, needles. Um, <laughs> He's gonna throw up the needles. Needles. <laughs> That's all for our podcast friends. There it is. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it there's also, I mean, Gus Van Sant at his best. I mean, I, and I, I do like some of his studio movies. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Goodwill Hunting apologist. Who's not? Um, but I do think that at his best, when I he's like doing drugstore, <laughs> drugstore cowboy, or uh, my own private Idaho, yeah, you know, which is better. Uh, elephant. Elephant. Uh, I mean, when he's just taking swings. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's no one like him. Doing elephant when he did elephant was a pretty amazing. Move. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. After he'd already done Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was after Psycho, right? After he had Psycho. flailed out with Psycho. I mean, well, maybe Finding Forrester too. <sighs> he had a weird. He's got a weird career. It, yeah, we had this kind of like weird post Goodwill Hunting thing where they're like, he's the guy to do yeah everything, yeah. everything, yeah. and then to to cash it all in for a shot for shot remake for, of Psycho. Oh, I was going to say for a shot for shot remake of Columbine is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's two sides of the blank check coin. Psycho, right? I don't Psych- find Psycho interesting. I don't either, yeah. but he definitely goes all, I mean, that's an all-in situation. He's like, I want to yeah. do a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho with Anne Hesch and Vince Vaughn. To wait, I, I think that was I think <laughs> like, that was a waste of a lot of people's time. Yes, yes, I would agree. I remember sitting in that theater, I remember being like weirdly excited by the experiment of it and thinking like this could be interesting, and the cast was sort of bonkers. And I sat in the theater, and as it started, I was like, oh, okay. This is going to be a shot for I mean, it's just bizarre. I think my own private Idaho shares a lot of DNA with this. Me too. I, I think, and I think that's also another underrated. I think that actually might be better 
in my mind, than Drugstore Cowboy. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think for the same thing is that, you know, you, you get into the intimacy of a, of a friendship and a relationship and a love. Yeah. That, like... It's I, just there's swings in that movie, too. Like, he does the, the like, the, the visual poetry kind yeah. of better than a lot of people do. Um, yeah, it's just, I remember one of the, the moments that stands out at me, and I don't know why, but I remember River Phoenix getting a blowjob and just a house, a yeah. shot of a house just mm-hmm. falling, falling and just crumbling. Yep. It's like, I don't know why, but it just, it, stuff like that that really stayed with me. I mean, I think, you know, filmmakers, and again, I, I just keep going back to it, and maybe it is the magic hour of it all. Maybe it's the way that um, she shoots a lot of the exteriors that are so, beautiful but i keep thinking of terrence malick because i think terrence malick is the only other person that kind of tries to do spirituality yeah you know this mystical search for something um and that it's just so baked into every one of his movies and and i think that's that's an inherent part of that there's a seeking quality too well there's no one that does sort of like visual poetic filmmaking like he's trying to tell you a story almost Purely with visuals. I mean, I think about you know Tree of Life and just yeah, sure. sitting in that theater and being like, thin red lines. Uh, yeah, well, just, I, so, it washes over you. It's like you are either receptive to it right. or you reject it entirely oh, I, as, as pretentious filmmaking. I love Terrence Malick so yeah. much because I think Terrence Malick's main point is um, we already live on heaven, we already live on hell. Like right. just look around. Yeah, you know. Um, uh, and I think that's that, great. And I, but I, I think that everyone else is kind of like, no, 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 it's coming or it's not. We're going to be right. worm food. But I think he's like, just look around. Like there's so much here. It's yeah. funny that you should bring that. Well, so, you know, there's that scene, right? That's the opening scene that like looks to me like panic on needle park where he's sitting with Michelle and mm-hmm. it's a year after they first met. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's asking him what, what he was saying to these Jehovah's witnesses. And, and forgive me, I'm just going to paraphrase, but I remember it being like, it's something like, you know, they were promising me heaven, and I said, you know, well, what if, if, if heaven's so great, what's to keep us from killing ourselves right now, yeah. and what's the difference between living and dying? And they didn't have an answer. And I think that that's such a, it's such a crucial sort of thing about the movie. It's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Like, death and life are inherently tied together. Heaven and hell are inherently tied together. That's just the human experience. You just have to – it can drive you insane or drive, you know, you to – seek coping mechanisms like heroin if, yeah. if you really pause to consider it. The, 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 I mean, this is now we're getting into somewhere totally crazy, but the, the stupidest con- the stupidest thing about heaven and hell to me is if I went to heaven immediately within 20 minutes, I'd be like, all right, so what's the meaning of this? Right. Right. Like it, it right. would mean we're real. I mean, life really is such a gift. It's unbelievable. We get to live here for a hundred years or yeah. something. It's insane that we get to live here for a hundred years. Um, and I, again, that's why I love Malik so much because he really taps into this thing of like, um, appreciate the I, tree of life does it so well with, yeah. with dinosaurs, with going back to the, to the, you know, the kind of the cosmos and really like appreciate how infinitesimally unlikely this is, mm-hmm. um, that you get to even have a father or, have a mother, live in a house, eat food, experience pleasure, experience pain, experience loss, experience birth. Every be, be, be cognizant of the scope of history. It's incredible. So, but I do think that that's. I feel as though FH does sort of come to that conclusion by the end of the film. Like I think he does realize how lucky he is. I think by the, the film end. is about that. You know what I mean? There's I, a I reason think, it ends in heaven's waiting room. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to watch him grapple with. The mistakes and the fuck ups, like the, the the bunnies being maybe the, the the most sort of glaring moment for him, where he just realizes how much of a fuck up he is. Yeah. 
But then on some level, by the end, you almost feel like he's like, but that's who I am. And I'm embracing the fuck ups. And like, that's life. Like it's an, it's, it's a, it's a very powerful sort of epiphany that he has at the end of the film. Yeah. As small as it can feel. Fuck ups are always, and I, I, I say this as a fuck up. <laughs> fuck ups are always going to be fuck ups. Right? right. Like, and you do kind of have to embrace it, I think. You yeah. Know? So I'm, okay. So I'm 20 years old. I'm at the Angelica on my own watching this movie. Yeah. And I think that sensation of, you know, I, when you're 20 years old, you often feel like a fuck up all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Like you're not, you know, I don't know. I, I always felt like I was at arm's length from popular culture and at arm's length from mm. like whatever it was that made sense. I didn't understand, you know, somewhere there were people who got it and I just didn't get it. And then when I saw this movie and I was like, oh, that is a universal experience. You know, that is actually what is, is, is human. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That is where my great affection for this movie was born from and why I think that this is an underrated classic. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... it. I mean, it's great that you had that epiphany watching this film because it does feel as though it's a series of characters having those moments and some of them breaking good and some of them breaking bad for them. Yeah, um, the cast is truly stellar, and I and and Samantha Morton's performance in this film is it's a fucking hurricane of a performance. Like she just <sighs> enters this film, and I just think like. I just wish we had more Samantha Morton performances. Like, I don't feel like we got enough of them. We're going to get more of them, hopefully. But it does feel like she, there was this moment, and then it, it kind of just, she just stopped making movies. Like, I just didn't see her in a lot of things. I, don't, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm crazy, but it does feel like maybe she just didn't, I don't know. I mean, I mean this is, I have this whole theory on that. Well, first oh, of all, just to sing in praise of Samantha Morton, yeah. there's, a, there's a shot that I want to go on for an extra minute, which is after the scene where she has the abortion and he oh like God, yeah. comes in and what did they just, stick up you? What did they stick? You know, he's yeah. high and he's like asking her all of these questions. And there's a shot of her where she's just kind of like, like a caged animal, like screaming and there's tears on her, yeah. uh, on her, on her hospital yeah. gown. And they roll this reaction shot of her for like 15 or 20 minutes. But you know that she gave a take that must've been, just it's sitting in the incredible. cutting room floor. Like share this with the world. Yeah. <laughs> like please just it's, show she's us. Unbelievable. She's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It, it's interesting too. Cause um, oh, we, we, yeah, sorry, so I, I, say, yeah, yeah. I have this theory about, you know, Samantha Morton and it's, it, it comes in the wake of all of the Harvey Weinstein, me too stuff is that you learn that, you know, whether it was Ashley Judd or Samantha Morton or uh, Sarah Polly or the, the, there's like, or um, uh, what was her name? Mia Kirshner from uh, Adam McGowan's yeah, movies. From his, like yeah. there is a whole 
generation of incredibly talented independent cinema actor actresses yeah. I, but i say actors, like actor yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know yeah. uh, whose entire f- careers were fucked because they refused to touch harvey weinstein's dick yeah. and that the injustice of that is fucking gross is so gross yeah. and so and i just every casting director in the world i or if you're a writer just write parts for these women because they yeah, just need it's, to be it, out there i i obviously couldn't agree with you more i i, I think that you know, she she gets an Oscar nomination in '99 for *Sweet and Lowdown*. Another okay. another filmmaker, another <laughs> problematic problematic filmmaker to say the least. Um, and she's incredible in that film. I remember seeing that film in '99 and being like, "Who is that?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she's obviously incredible in this. And then it's. Did you see she, Morvan Keller? I have not seen Morvan Keller. That's really good. And then what was the movie where it was like her and in her America? Sister? She's oh, in that. She's in, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, she's in. Uh, she's obviously, Minority Report. She's in Minority, Minority Report. Report. Right. Um, where she took on over. Walking Dead, right? Just she's on Walking Dead now. Face on her face. Yeah. <laughs> now she's in Walking Dead. She's in Walking Dead. So I mean, she's she over. takes over for for Kate Blanchett on Minority Report because it was supposed to be right. Kate Blanchett, and then there was some sort of I think she, maybe Kate got pregnant or I, I don't know, but um, that would have been weird to me. Kate Blanchett. Yeah, that would have been weird. She seems about 10 years too old at the time to play that role. There's a vulnerability, I think, that was necessary. But Yeah. No, I, I loved I loved her in Minority Report. Um, but the, the thing that also kind of occurred to me as I was watching Jesus' Son is um, her voice and how she was originally, she was Samantha in her, uh, the Spike right. Jones film. Mm-hmm. And then he re-recorded the entire thing with, with Scarlett Johansson. Um, really? Yeah. He did. He basically did the entire film with her voice. So, hi, I'm Sam. Is literally, I am Samantha Morton. Yeah. Wow. So it was. It, he did the whole thing, and then I guess it didn't work for him, or maybe it didn't work for for the studio. Not really sure. Either way, it's then re-recorded it, with with uh, Scott. Th- you probably don't know the answer to this. Mm-hmm. Was it with an accent or not? I don't know the answer to that. But that's why, because when I heard her American accent in this, I found it. Re- I I think her voice is is fantastic. But it, there's something very soothing about her voice yeah. and very interesting about her voice. And perhaps that was, I don't know, maybe, I don't know why she got cut out of it. But I, I mean. My first impression of her in this movie, I first saw obviously, I think she was incredible too. Yeah. Um, that dance is amazing. <laughs> Where she's dancing yeah. to Sweet Pea? That yeah. dance is, that dance. <laughs> like, how do you not notice that, that woman? How do you not notice that actress? Yeah, how, how do you, like... It's like so it's like good. wild and frenetic and also Weird. sexy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what I can't yeah. get over is like despite how fucking crazy it is, <laughs> and, and, it's it, it's not it's not it, it, it was no debt to any dance style <laughs> that's ever come before it. It is still really sexy and alluring. Um, how could you not oh. want to know more about this woman? Yeah, she's. I, I mean, she's 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 drop dead gorgeous. I think the the other thing that's so great about that sequence is the cuts to. Billy Crudup's reaction yes. shots, yeah. where he, yeah. like the audience, is trying to figure out what strange fucking yeah. beast this is. Yeah. What, is, planet like, is yeah. Yeah. what planet is she She's from? What planet is she from? Incredible. Yeah. It's it's interesting. There's there is another needle drop to that song in another movie, which is uh, it's how Courtney Love is introduced in The People vs. Larry Flint. No mm-hmm. way. And that song is just so visceral that somehow we can survive both of those needle drops and, and absolutely work. Like it's just such a fucking great song. And both of those, both of those characters are so like vibrant, crazy characters, but it's just two two of our finest actresses. (laughs) (laughs) We, we, I mean, we loved Courtney Love in 200 cigarettes. I'm kidding. That's not a joke. I know. And I love her in people versus Larry. Larry It's a great movie. Um, 
so uh, the movie's title comes from a line in the Velvet Underground song, apparently heroin. Yes. Um, and I feel just like Jesus' son. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we talked a little bit about that first shot. I guess we should just sort of, we'll talk about the kind of, we'll just hit some points along the way of the, sure. of the, of what's happened, what happens in the film. But um, I love the muffled voices of the family in the car mm. when he gets in the car, because he's clearly on some other, I don't know, plane of existence, I yeah. guess. They just don't, they, you know, um, the car gets into, into an accident. We see one of the daughters screaming as his doctor breaks the news to her later. And then that voiceover that I mentioned earlier, which I love, where he says, what a pair of lungs. She shrieked as I imagined an eagle would. It felt wonderful to be alive to hear it. I've gone looking for that feeling everywhere. Yeah. I, like think, can, I, mean, I think that's a direct, that's how you open your movie. Usually. I think that's yeah, a direct crazy. pull from the book. I'm sure from yeah. the book. I think that's actually Dennis Johnson's words, which I feel like there's a lot of those. I haven't read the book in years. Um, he but, adapted it, so I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, that scene. A couple things about that scene. The description of it in the book, if you are to read the book, and I highly suggest you guys. You know, it's it's such a quick read. It's such a beautiful sure. book. The description of the interior of that car during the crash, mm-hmm. and you know, he he talks about that whole thing about like knowing that the crash is going to happen and that all time will stop and count it. There's this description of counting the glass and the blood yeah. in the headlight, and where oh, time wow. is just stopped, and he's sitting there and he's aware of being alive. That is like one of the most poetic <laughs> pages of literature ever. And the other great thing about that scene is that. You cut out of that scene with the the screaming, exactly what you're talking about, right? Where you know he says, you know, I've gone looking for that feeling ever since, and you jump back, you know, two acts later into the movie, into that scene, yeah, and you, you realize back. the context of everything that had happened prior, and you see this thing that you don't realize at the time, which is that he walked out, he and a baby survived, yeah. and that he walks out, and this is after you know this 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 abortion and the mm-hmm. loss of 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 you know these baby rabbits and all of these mm-hmm. things that he he feels like he's responsible for death, but that he's able to have this shared moment with this purely innocent thing after that. Like suddenly, when you go back and you look at it in reverse, you you totally understand why that why why, why that, we started there why we started there yeah and it's not just because of a car accident like a, a shittier movie would have made it a plot device as to reveal right. something about the plot but it's actually revealing something about the character like, like goodfellas yeah. like a shitty movie like goodfellas <laughs> I, I wasn't saying that <laughs> no, it is a know. kind of a shitty thing it's not my it favorite thing about, it's not my favorite thing about goodfellas yeah but that's a yeah i mean that's more of an event yes you're right yeah yes, and yeah. I, I i think it's a shitty device almost it's always, um, Goodfellas does it best, but I think yes, it's right. almost always a shitty thing to do the, 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 wait, 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 the timeline. Let me tell you how I got here. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Mike job. Yeah, that's yeah. me. It's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no rec- record scratch. Yeah, but I, I would, I would argue so that you would putting all over my face. You might wonder why I have this pudding on my face. But wouldn't you argue that? And yes, Agreed. We all agree. Shitty device. Great. Moving this on. movie does this oh. device. Oh, th- this but, is not an example. Right? Because the voiceover in this movie is amazing. I love how it sounds. Like, yeah. just the, the way he talks, it the, feels so just like we're the in his head. The device I am bumping against is using it once in the beginning and not having it be part yeah. of the structure yeah. of the movie. Right. This is the structure of this movie. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not bumping against but it. I, and I was just, because voiceover is a crutch. We all know that sometimes it can be used as a crutch. Mm. Um, mm. I, I, it doesn't bother me as much as it does some critics and other people. Right. Voiceover can be a crutch. Um, and, and sometimes my issue with it literally comes down to the way the lines are delivered. Like if it seems too clean and it seems to, from another sort of perspective or something, this to me felt like we were in fuckheads head. Yeah. It felt, 
it felt like we were just like bouncing around inside there. I never, which I, loved. A, I never have a big problem with a narrator who has a point of view telling you a story. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that's fine mm-hmm. to me. That's just for, that's just movies, ver- cinema's version of a first person sure. uh, yeah. novel. That's yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's also like what it does so elegantly, you know, what's so great about a book is that, you know, you can get into the drama of the interior emotional experience of a character yeah. simply by saying he thought or he felt. And, you know, we have to do that all through external action and we're trained you know, as television writers, as, as screenwriters, yeah. you got to do that through story. You got to do that through external stuff. Show and don't that, tell. Show yeah. don't tell. And that this movie, because of the rambling and beautiful quality of the voiceover and the disjointed sensation of it, is the closest I think I've seen of of any adaptation, literary adaptation, to get that perfect blend of mm-hmm. what is interior, what is emotional, and then what is you know, story on the outside. Yeah. It's, it's, this is fractured narrative in the best possible form, because to me, it doesn't feel like it's fractured on a plot. It's fractured on character, um, which is just very different. I I mean, even just now, you know, we, we, at this point in the story, FH knocks on a door and Michelle played by Samantha Morton opens it. And we flash back to three years earlier. So it's like, he literally just gives us a pop of this moment between the two of them, which we don't quite know why that's an important moment. And then we will come back on it and it's her cleaned up and it's her with her shit together and she wants to be there for him and she wants to be everything and they have this you know tragic sort of span of time together in this yeah. hotel room um but it's 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 the unreliable narration which can sometimes be unfortunate that is perfect in this i think but um fh and his friends find a deaf guy sleeping in his car that's right <laughs> <laughs> which is one of just, the most funny physical comedy <laughs> scenes in the movie of which it has some oh, great physical so comedy funny. scenes but yeah it's just and it, it just what are you talking about when he's running after the car yeah yeah oh it's so good it's just yeah it's exactly what i'm talking about and he runs yeah. and he hits the yeah. and it's also like you know it, it's just like there nobody's really phased it, there's just like a total acceptance that there's going to mm-hmm. be a deaf guy sleeping in your it's car the 70s man <laughs> yeah that shit man <laughs> It's All and him just being like, is this a thing? Happened. Like, what's happening? Like, it's it's just it's great. Uh, then we meet a very uh, very young Ben Shankman. That's correct. A very young with ben a Shankman, real with a really great mustache. gross mustache. <laughs> uh, you which say I gross. Love. I say fantastic. <laughs> you say seventies. Yeah. Uh, and then we we meet Michelle at uh, at the at the deaf guy's friend's house. Right. I believe. In that, and that's technically, that's McInnes. That's Artie Bucco, yes. right? That's Artie Bucco. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but we haven't met him yet. But we, we don't meet him, him until later when he's making out with Samantha right. Morton. That's right. And then he just shows up. And he up. just shows up. And and it's unclear, this, like, what drugs they're on, but everybody's on Everyone drugs. seems high or what's, very least drunk. I, uh, what's interesting to me, among a million other things, is, uh, you know, The Sopranos came out in 1999. It did. When this movie was in theaters... I'm sure 95% of people who saw this movie was then familiar with him as Artie Bucco. Right. When this movie was made and it was cast, this guy was nobody, you know, or nobody to no one. Um, What are the odds that he was in Big Night? <laughs> Big Night's the, the fucking best. He's got like yeah, one line. But no, you're you're right. He was probably working in theater. Yeah. Or like that a, in New York. Just a working actor. But yeah. um, when you say he didn't really come into it until later, 
obviously for me, yeah. immediately it's Artie Bucco. Yeah, yeah. And that's not necessarily what the movie intended. This isn't the most interesting tangent. But there you go. <laughs> no, no, no. No, but he's, he's, I mean, he's great. He's, he's, he's spectacular. So and you also realize, like, what a good actor does is that it's yeah. not, he's not Artie. He's no. this other, you know, yeah. you, you. He's imposing. You know, it, he really he is. is the second he shows up, you're like, this is this is fucking bad. Which he is not as Artie Bucco. No, he is not. I it's love the that character. He's one yeah. of my favorite characters yeah. on that show. I mean, if only d- does this movie bear rewatching for a scene of a menacing Michael Shannon yes. and <laughs> a gunshot Artie Bucco, <laughs> like trying to convince oh, as so he good. pleads for his life, and he has this menacing, possibly psychotic Michael Shannon on top of him, just yeah. trying to. Michael Shannon, who, by the way, looks the same. Exactly the same. He's, <laughs> it's been 20 years. He needs he looks to the see same. a doctor immediately. He's only... Immediately, he's only, Michael Shannon. We love you. Please. We're scared yeah, for it. It's happening, I'm buddy. Very worried. He, yeah. So he's always only had one gear. No, it's, he's the only guy who has that gear. He's so excited. He's, Michael yeah. Shannon? Yeah. No, Michael Shannon is the best. I, I, I love Michael, Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon is... I, I saw him once do Stephen Adley Gorgeous at the public theater and just... Own, that guy is just, I think he's yeah. great. I will say this though. Farts fucking talent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's crazy. Yeah, no, that's that not right. Is, well, I mean, he's you know. just exceptional. I think, I think what you're tapping into you know is, tapping. is that Hollywood has been like, this is Michael Shannon's lane. So I do feel like sometimes odd. Oh, no, he's odd. Oh, he's odd. Yes. His lane is, uh, it seems like he's a second away from Intense. strangling you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at all times in every movie. Um, yeah. even the movies where he's like, you know, you're, you're, your entry point protagonist, like, what's that movie? Give me shelter. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I still feel like he's a second away from strangling. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, and even, um, midnight special, midnight that, special. He's yeah. really, he's so good. He's in that. so good he's in that movie great. and very like paternal yeah. and beautiful. And yet you're still like, please don't hurt that kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, he might be, he might be the most menacing actor. <laughs> like even shape of water was, I just remember with the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Oh, shape of I'm thinking of. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Michael Shannon, and and so and I think this was the first movie I had ever seen him, and he steals every scene he's in. When he mm-hmm. showed up, I was like, he's like, yeah, he's just it's arresting. Electric. The second you see him, you're just like, oh fuck. Yeah. Um, so, so then we we smash cut to F H and Michelle making out. Artie Buko, uh, Buko shows up, and you immediately know that something's. He knows that he's fucked up, um, but then we flash forward to them on a park bench. And they talk a little bit about McInnes mm-hmm. and he talks about how, like, I tried to help him. And she's like, I heard you tried to you help him. You were the only one that did. Um, he put up a fight or something like that. Like he put in a good fight, like yeah. the, the idea that he didn't want to die. And you, in, you sort of, you're like, I guess this guy died. And then in the narration, he's like, Oh right. fuck, I forgot to tell you about it. And so now he goes back <laughs> and you kind and of assume it it's an overdose, right? Like at first yeah. you're like, Oh, this has got to be like, yeah. because this is about junkies. Yeah. And that's the beauty of this movie is that it's constantly subverting your expectation. I totally agree with you. Just when you think that you, you can't predict where this movie is going ever, um, which is part of its gift, which is that it's just, it's going to take you on some, some weird. And sometimes like they will feel, it can feel meandering because of that. If you're a person who wants plot propulsion. Yeah. But I think what's fun about this movie is how tricky it is and that it's doing sort of turns that you just wouldn't expect coming. It reminds me of the thing that I love so much about half hour comedy now. Like when mm-hmm. I look at the genius that is Donald Glover and I look at yeah. the genius that is master of none mm-hmm. and you know, the genius that is transparent, mm-hmm. like that the plot is so unexpected and also so, you know, just literally comes from, uh, 
a character's response to the most minor of external cues. It's the best. And it is the best. Atlanta more than most. Atlanta more than most, That's what almost every story seems like. Almost Simpsons-esque. Yeah. And like the... um, there's an elasticity to that show. Like it's do it. It, it can yeah. bend in ways that I just that I've never just, seen. There's coming. that episode where Lakeith Stanfield is like got the samurai sword and is like looking to resolve the samurai sword <laughs> in like season one. Do you guys oh remember? yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the second to last episode, something yeah. like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. But it actually becomes like a spiritual journey about <laughs> yeah. like to yeah. what degree do you have control in your life and like are things going to work out or not? And it's this big like that reminds me so much of this movie, you know, in yeah. a weird yeah. way. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, no, it definitely, for sure. Um, I also love that, uh, so Michelle and FH go back to his place, or her place, I'm not sure whose place it is, Yeah, and they start to make out again, and he asks her to slow down. That's right. Because, which I think is just an interesting dynamic, that for her, she obviously uses, you know, sex as some sort of a control, or some sort of, what, however you want to uh, break that down, and him just being the one that wants to embrace this and enjoy this. Um, this moment with her because he's obviously infatuated with her. Um, I may be, I may be wrong about this, but uh, it does kind of seem like we come into an FH is almost a man without a past. Yes, yeah. right. Like I, that's one of the biggest kind of character moments for me, and yeah. I appreciate the way they do it without being like, well, let me tell you why I want to slow down. Let me tell you what happened in my childhood, and then right. we get into some kind of horrible experience he had as a kid. I can just, I, I'm pretty smart guy i can assume that, right. <laughs> that he had some kind of traumatic yeah. experience that turned him into the fuckhead he is today but yeah. we never really get into it i think that's a that, that's a very mature confident way to get into this movie yeah i i yeah it's dead on right like what it, david mamet calls that that my dead dog speech mm-hmm. you know as my dog died and then that's why i'm an asshole like that kind of um but yeah you know you know absolutely nothing about him besides what he tells you and what you see on screen mm-hmm. you know nothing at all about him you don't even know his name He's like the guy. You know, yeah, he's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Michelle does heroin in his kitchen. Yes, just very nonchalant. She, I think she asks, "Have you ever seen anyone do heroin?" Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, and he's just like eating cereal. That's right, out of the box. There's cartoons. Well, she's, on well the there's TV. cartoons on the TV, which is a bit of a trope. This <laughs> is my favorite. No, you're thing, right. That, but, that, yeah, it, yeah. You, it feels like the the scene in Pulp Fiction where you're in um, Eric Stoltz's kitchen. And yeah. Like, yeah, that's true. And that's we, true. You know, we we did Ghost Dog this year too, and they they use cartoons mm-hmm. to kind of juxtapose or they juxtapose cartoons against kind of really violent moments. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe that's also like a 70s thing, right? Where you have all these Gen X filmmakers who are like, ah, yes, drugs is just seeking the experience of like watching, <laughs> you know, eating, you know, sugary cereal yeah. and watching cartoons. That's what it seems like here. Yeah. I mean, I always think yeah. when, when I see cartoons kind of juxtaposed against um, moments that aren't cartoonish, uh, I always think of the, the being there thing. I said it in the ghost talk thing, but I love that basketball Jones sequence. Yeah, and being sure. There, there's something, I don't know, there's something that just feels kind of right about that moment. Um, weirdly triumphant. And you get that Peter Sellers' character is like just a kid. Just a kid. Just yeah. a kid. Um, which I oh, think how Ashby you talk about no but not honestly like yeah. how did how did we not talk about that when we talk it's about true. filmmakers yeah. that she's got something in common with yeah. that actually might be even more than Terrence Malick that yeah. might be the one right yeah you know they like n- nothing looks like this movie more than Harold and Maude nothing yeah. did, that's, that's, that's really true, true. Yeah, that's down to true. the excellent shearling jackets. Like, yeah, it, yeah that's. Yeah. I think Hal Ashby's actually that's the one, right? Yeah, you're yeah. totally right. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah. Um, so we're back at the Holiday Inn with Michelle. Uh, FH is now helping her shoot up. 
Um, he's not doing it himself at this stage, it seems. But she kicks him out for reasons that are never really explained. She just right. gets upset at him and then steals some guy's car to the parking lot. Uh, it's 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 a little. I mean, it's apropos of I don't know, but it's it just shows how volatile she is, I guess, more than anything, and how volatile this relationship is. Um, That's what I kinda, read. That is drugs. Yeah, I no, read for that sure, as sure. like yeah. Um, uh, certain drugs when you're coming down. You it can just certainly turn feels into a fucking monster, <laughs> or the people around you turn into a fucking monster. Yeah. Kids don't do drugs, yeah, and uh, <laughs> kids don't do drugs. But that yeah. struck me as being um, remarkably. Accurate. It's a great. I do like the scene though that she essentially starts a fight with those guys, pins it on Billy Crudup, so they leave their car so that she can, she steal, can steal the steal car. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah, um, I have a question for you guys about drugs. Sure. sure. Um, <laughs> No, I'm not, I'm, not that, I'm not that down with the youth these days, but it seems to me like the youth, people in their t- early 20s, mm-hmm. are less seduced by drugs than we were, right? And you obviously resisted, Phil. Yeah, I did. Um, continue to. Continue to. <laughs> you did not. I did not. I'm five years sober. Me too. So, um, a huge deal. Thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, it was very seductive. As a Very kid, seductive. extremely seductive, seductive as a kid, and I by kid I mean fifteen, sixteen to use. I never used heroin, but um, you know to use other drugs and to drink. Is that true for kids today? It seems. I mean, this is so kind of this is such a hack take, but it seems like social media has, in some ways, replaced it for a lot of kids. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Either. I, I don't wish know. we had a and youth on the. On the yeah, I wish we had a young redeeming fucking thing about me. That I <laughs> yeah. Um, if I knew with any authority, my life would be seriously fucked, or I would probably be on those drugs. Yeah. But my my take on it is, and I and it was one of the things that I thought about with this movie is that. Why is there not an equivalent humanity take around some of the opioid epidemic that is claiming, you know, 18, 15,000 people a year Mm. here in America, Mm -hmm. where you're not treating it with a moralization, you're treating it from a character focus? Mm -hmm. You know, how powerful would a movie about struggling with an opioid addiction in, I don't know, Indiana or Kentucky Mm -hmm. or where, you know, Southern Ohio, any one of these places. 40 miles inland right from where we are right now. I mean, it 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 is this thing that is gripping this country. It is a different kind of drug, and yet it is the exact same thing seems a lot less sexy well that's the thing is it like you know what a weird thing of the 90s to kind of have heroin chic yeah exactly what a weird thing and it starts in seattle in the 1990s and it ends kind of at the end of the 1990s with a movie like this and then in the end of the 1990s you had you had ecstasy which became really hot yeah and then i was in college cocaine became really hot so like there was this idea for me at least Going from and pills, like pills start to take over, pills, prescription drugs yeah. start to take over. In the early 2000s, I felt that pull too. Yep. This, when does just, Crystal start happening? It never, it, it, it never happened with the people that I'm talking about. Okay. So yeah. it, it never became like a, like a cool chic thing. It Anybody became, that I knew that used Crystal meth, usually, well, most of the people that I knew Crystal, who used Crystal meth in, in New York tended to be part of like the gay club scene. Okay. Um, I want to make one point about my sobriety. I talk about smoking pot on this uh, podcast lots sure. too. Never considered that to be the same thing. So there you go. But <laughs> I, no, I said, look, I think heroin's a really. I think heroin is a, is a different beast. I've you know, unfortunately, uh, I have never been addicted to heroin, but I've I've had a couple friends in my life, um, you know, who have struggled with that mm-hmm. in particular. I've had a couple friends in my life who, uh, 
you know, are straight up garbage heads, which I think is, you know, what fuckhead is. Mm-hmm. He just kind of does yeah. everything, right? Yeah. Miranda July sure. gives him a giant fucking bunch yeah. of mushrooms. And yeah. But um, there so is, weird. there is, there is an, I think there is, I don't, I can't say for certain, but uh, there is an undertow to heroin in particular that strikes me as ridiculously fucking hard to beat. The body count on it is sick. Mm-hmm. And it's, Anybody that's caught up in that, you know, uh, I think deserves empathy more than anything else um, and treatment because I think the drug takes over. And I think, you know, that is what makes this movie unique is it treats a character who is addicted um, as a human being first. Sure. Um, Even if they do fucked up things, you know, they also attempt to do things that are wildly not fucked up. Right. And it is the seeking of that and the attempt to get it right that is the thing that, you know, defines that character as ultimately heroic. And I think that's probably true of everyone who's struggling with addiction. A thing that happened, and again, going back to the 90s versus the 70s, in the 70s it seemed like drugs generally were a way to cope with things, right? Yeah. Cope with some undiagnosed mental condition mm-hmm. or to cope with a difficult life. Um, some, some, and then clearly a lot of great art actually did come out of this in yeah. real life. So it became kind of sexy and seductive. Something different happened in the nineties. It became something that you did for fun, yeah, which is a right. weird way to look at it. You know, it's just kind of a weird thing that happened to everybody in this country. It stopped being yeah. like the kind of thing that, that they, a, a sad I mean that in a depressed kind of way, a depressed person or a, or a undiagnosed person would do. And it started being something you did to be cool. And I think that's the difference between a drug movie that looks back at the seventies or takes place in the seventies that necessarily has to look back at, has to look at these people with empathy and movies that take place in the nineties that I think has to take a little more of a side eyed view at what they're doing and why they're doing it. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it does. And the opioid crisis seems to be hearkening back to more of a, pain killing type thing. Right. You know, more of a coping mechanism type thing, less of a, let's go to a rave and yeah. lose ourselves for eight hours. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the other thing to that point, and I think that's a really salient point. I think the other thing that kind of strikes me about like nineties treatment of drug culture versus like 1970s treatment of drug culture is the degree to which things that were countercultural were being used to sell stuff. Sure. Right. That I think, you know, if you were, you know, uh, uh, if you look at the writers or, you know, the photography, you talk about Nan Golden, you talk about, you know, um, you know, bands like the Velvet Underground, right? Like these were, you know, things like, I think this movie, like these were transgressive outliers to conventional culture and without an internet, right? It required a certain amount of seeking it out to find that these voices or, or these kind of takes on, on what the drug experience was, was, you know, all that beat culture, right? Like that was really counterculture in the nineties. It was what you used to sell Calvin Klein. Yeah. I was just, I, and, that was, that was going to be my, your heroin so chic point is kind of like, the best one. It's, make. it's, it is, it is this, it is this, thing that is extreme and you know uh sexy and you know there's fiona apple rolling around on a shag carpet and like a bunch of you know and there's kate moss like live fast die young live fast die corpse but it is it it i mean again it's so fucking superficial and i think that you got 
all of these heroin movies that were so fucking superficial, and then this one they made came it seem along. cool. Is the thing like that, and it's that's not even it's not. even it's people not. even <laughs> people you know people misread Train Spotting too. Yes, right. They misread it the way they misread Fight Club and Goodfellas and a lot of movies. Some yeah. people look at Train Spotting and go like, "That's the kind of shit I wish I did." Well, I so I was yeah. I remember so Pulp Fiction comes out in ninety four. You've got Train Spotting in ninety seven. Ninety seven. I remember watching Pulp Fiction, and I mean, Which I guess is a heroin movie. Too. I was going to say yeah. that's a heroin movie oh, yeah. that makes heroin look pretty cool. sexy. What's What's the line? Take the greatest orgasm you've ever had, multiply it by yeah. ten thousand, and you're not even close. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that's they're basically now. Now, Train Spotting is um, is more about sort of that. Uh, the dark side. It flips on them and it obviously goes dark. And then you have, and whereas Train Spotting, with sort of Pulp Fiction, you have, there's consequences to it, but the consequences are that Mia overdoses and, right. and but it's not. By right. the way, that that's sexy. Like, I, it, I, it's, I it's, it's overtly sexy. I agree. Sticking the, sticking the, um, the plunger the, into, into yep, the, Tell me more, Dr. Freud. Yeah. Oh, it's. <laughs> he penetrates her yeah, breast. Yeah, yeah. He penetrates her, he penetrates a, a little pink dot on her yeah, breast. Right. On top of all, I mean, if I, yeah. Marker, yeah. marker could have been any fucking color, right? <laughs> it's true. So he finds it could have a little, black. A, yeah. a, it could have yeah. been any fucking color, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But he finds a little pink dot, penetrates it on her chest. She <gasps> like that. I you mean, know, it's definitely orgasmic. No, definitely, it's, yeah. it's it's a place. I mean, yeah. I, I I've always loved that that sequence <laughs> because I do think that it is just kind of this incredibly heightened date between mm-hmm. two people yeah. who cannot have sex that night. Yeah, right. Um, but they do have this this yes. moment of intimacy. But yes, you know, use heroin. But it, it's it's fuck yeah. the boss's wife. <laughs> <laughs> do we feel like the depiction of drugs now is better or worse than then? I mean, do we feel as though I still what, think What's an example of a modern depiction of drugs? What's of an drug example use? of a good depiction of drug use besides this movie? Uh, it's a very good question. I don't oh, know. Oh, uh, Requiem is really... Because Re- yeah. Requiem drops all the pretenses and like, this is going to kill you. Blow. I think Blow does a good job. Yeah. Um... I'm going to look up and see what it's funny. Like, it's, there, th- yeah, what's got a rambling, hallucinatory quality? Well, there's, you know, I mean, another Johnny Depp movie, uh, Fear and Loathing, has, yeah. its own, has its own kind of thing where it's non judgmental. I think Go, actually, in a weird way to go back to it, was like a really good ecstasy movie. No, you know, it's movie. interesting. That's, yeah, it's, yeah um, I mean, the best part Inherent of Go Vice? Is, the, is the ecstasy part. Ooh, yeah. That's a good call. Inherent that's Vice? That's a good call. Isn't but, it? Yeah, what would you call that? Would you call that a pot? Movie? I don't know. I mean, that movie's—it's a weird movie on a bunch of levels. But that's yeah. kind of a, I mean, that's that's. A, but that's also like breaking down drug culture from the seventies again, right? Or sixties? Yeah. Are there modern drug TV Spring shows? Spring Breakers. I'm looking at a list right weeds, now. I, I mean. guess. Uh, but yeah, weeds and Breaking Bad, but more on the kind of commerce side. Yeah, and I think Breaking yeah. Bad actually probably. I've I've never I've never done speed uh, mm-hmm. that I know of, um, mm-hmm. or at least you know meth. Um, and uh but there's like some of that paranoiac like weird chattery yeah you know with those extreme close-ups like some skinny pete stuff yeah um there i forgot how that that atm episode i mean i don't know if you guys remember that where they steal the atm yeah yeah Yeah, i mean they 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 get in there they get in there they get in there um so at this point we we meet up with dennis leary Mm -hmm. um and I love the introduction to his character being that he's too shaky to pick up the shot glass. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. There's just something very, like, you know that person. You, yeah. you understand who this person is, full, full stop. Um, 
we also have this great moment where FH is at the bar and he picks up a lit cigarette from behind the bar and takes a drag and someone catches him doing it. And he gives this like really innocent smile that Billy Crudup can pull off like that, which shows the, the gradation of this character where he's like, he knows he's a good looking guy. He knows he's a cute guy and he knows that he can get away with stuff yeah. that he might not be able that other people might not be able to get away with. Um, so it, it the, he's doing something very special, I think, in this movie, and that's a mo- again a little moment that that most movies would not do. Most movies would not take the time to, yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's interesting. Um, we get the ripped out wires. We get the split screen of, of the two of them dying. We get FH working at the hospital as an orderly mm-hmm. at this point with a with an orderly named uh, Georgie. Played by Jack Jack Black, Black. Yeah. an amazing Jack Black. He's this is He's I mean this so is top bad. three best Jack Black Definitely. performances, right? I mean, what else? School, what else of, is, School of Rock, School, School of, of Rock. Rock, and then what are you can do, Bob Roberts. I might put High Fidelity on. There. Oh, oh yeah. sure, oh, of course. Yeah. So Absolutely. those are the, those are the three. Came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> Like, mean, those are the three. You're talking. Wait, wait. It was this school of rock. school of rock is a little later. Yeah, and school of rock's the. Yeah, he's so good in high fidelity. But but, yeah. but he makes you cry in Jumanji too. So I, I mean, love Jumanji too. <laughs> I do. I truly. Love, it's it's not because of him though. He, though he is excellent. I'm I mean, sure. I got into all the tenacious D stuff. Yeah, like, that I kind of got so... swept up in the Jack Black of it all too. I mean, yeah. it kind of it peaks with it basically peaks with King Kong. That's kind of the beginning of the end. That's not great. No, but, but I mean, like does, that's the moment when they're like, he does Tropic Can Thunder too. Into... He's my least favorite part of Tropic Thunder. But also, oh, that's right, he's in that too. But um, I think that movie's so excellent in so many different ways. Yeah. It's a but weird it's also, movie. It's funny. It's like um, you know, other great '90s uh, uh, heroin movie, Permanent Midnight, the yes. stellar adaptation. Yeah. Of oh, that movie! That movie's amazing. That movie's great. Also amazing. Yeah. But the, this moment where you had, and again, you know, to go back to these, you know, the, the triumph of these like character driven half hour comedies that are on cable yeah. now, like it was a moment where a bunch of comedians were like, also, we have this bag of tricks that yeah. is yeah. so much weirder and cooler and like deeper. What's yeah. that dude's name? Jerry Stahl? Uh, Jerry Stahl was the writer. Yeah. yeah he wrote his a, life. Yeah. He wrote Alf. He wrote Alf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I know. It's my Twitter. It's my Twitter avatar. I'm down with Alf. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Dennis Johnson shows up in a cameo at this point. He's the That's guy right. with the knife in his head. You're right. kidding. Yeah. yeah I didn't him. know that. Which is just great. Um, and then FH has an amazing line. So the doctor, why am I forgetting who the doctor was? The doctor was somebody. Greg German. Right, right, mm-hmm. yes. The doctor is terrified, doesn't know what to do. Oh, wants this a specialist. is so fucking fun. And, and FH says, I need, says, eye man. I need, I need, a, a, I need the best eye man yeah. and the best brain man you've got. I, I need a gas man who's a genius. I basically need a genius. It, it's fantastic, but FH well, then it's says, one of my, "All the specialists are hurrying through the night to help us." So, yeah, <laughs> one, of, one of my great fears in life. Such a great line. So I love. I'm, I'm, I, I, I love is not the right word. I'm only comfortable. Yep. In the fifty states. Okay. And okay. Canada, I'm fine in. Okay. Anywhere else in the entire world, yep. I'm very nervous about having a. Horrible injury, mm-hmm. like a and knife, like a knife sure. to the eye, sure, sure, and sure. having to be on someone else's medical shit, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I'm also kind of afraid of being in a hospital that's not like in a major city. Uh-huh. Like my dad went down, went down. Love my dad; he's alive, he's doing great. <laughs> my dad, my dad went down on a golf course in Georgia, and he was, was it a good looking golf course. 
I'm just kidding. It, <laughs> it, 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 was, it, was, it was Augusta National. I'm not kidding. So, <laughs> my, dad, my dad, lifelong golfer, oh, waited his whole fucking life to play Augusta National. Uh, 67, it's 100, he's 67 years old. It's a 100-degree day on the 17th hole. He collapses. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Um, and he's in, a, he's, in a ho- he's in a hospital in Augusta, right? Hey. Which is not Atlanta. Right. And me and my mom go down there to go see him. And he's fine. Like, it was just, like, dehydration. Jeez. And this hospital's fine, obviously. This is a modern hospital. But, yeah. like, it scared the but shit the out of me. But the kid from Deliverance was sitting out front playing a band. Yeah. It scared the shit out of me, the idea of, like... Being trapped somewhere. That's, yeah. that's, this yeah. is where we got to yeah. go. This is, the best, yeah. this is the best shot we've got. This is a funny version of that, though. But I know, It I, was yeah. not unfunny. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we all thought yeah. he was, yeah, had a heart attack and no, it's just like, now. no, no, I meant this in the What's movie. Not oh, he's great. Just dehydration or something. It was just dehydration. Yeah. He was totally fine. Um, I didn't and, mean that your dad going down was funny. I meant that in the movie. Bro, it was I know. Fine. I'm just making. I know. I would never laugh at your father I, collapsing. Don't worry. I know. All I right. made the joke. Okay. Um, my dad is doing great. great. And uh, but it was. It's like it's like a, a omnipresent fear of mine when I'm anywhere away from the four cities that I'm you know familiar with. Right. Mm-hmm. Of being somewhere where I just can't trust the medical stuff. Yeah. And the, the Greg German thing in this of like get me a gas man who's a genius. <laughs> that is the doctor the I'm man. afraid of, or yeah. the doctor from that new commercial who walks in and goes, "Guess who's off probation." Yeah. Like, what was the, uh, <laughs> didn't SNL have, what was his, like, Hillbilly Hospital was, like, yeah. their recurring sketch for a while. Yeah. It kind of feels like it takes place in Hillbilly Hospital. And also, like, that the whole problem gets solved literally by an incredibly hijacked black Yeah, just pulls pulls the fucking knife out of his head. And keeps the knife. And keeps the knife. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we then get the rabbit moment. Yeah. They go on a road trip. They hit a rabbit. Remember what Jack Black says when he goes back? No. He goes, Rabbit stew! (laughs) Cuts open the rabbit. (laughs) He cuts open the rabbit. He gets the the babies out. He hands the babies to FH, who puts them in his pocket. And and by the way, he he puts them in his pocket. But again, talking about great music cues, as I recall, that's when they start playing the ballad of the Green Berets. Yeah. (laughs) He just like goes to town. It's fantastic. Yeah. They then, they stumble across a drive-in movie theater. Yes. which looks like a cemetery yep. because of the crosses, yeah. right. which is gorgeous. Um, and I thought was a cemetery until they pull until they turn around and you actually realize that they're in a, a drive-in theater, which is yeah. amazing. Rabbits are dead. His, that I mean, was that, in, was that in the book? Because that is, yes. that, and no, I'm sure the rabbits were, was the, um, the, the drive-in drive theater. Yeah. One? And so, okay. Cause so it this, works this, so nice. This goes towards, again, the, you have a couple of moments in this where the religious iconography um, right. become, you know, pretty pronounced and that this becomes about the mystical quest of a holy fool. And Dennis Johnson, who taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop for years and years and years, totally knew what he was doing, that, you know, a moment of ecstasy and degeneration is also you know marked by a moment of worship mm-hmm. um i think that was just part of his blend for how to get this stuff right you know you have an equivalent scene where he's following the stranger in the snakeskin coat who's got the tattoo of right. the flaming heart of jesus hmm. and um yeah and then a lot of the description of you know in that scene with dennis hopper and then ultimately when they get to to phoenix and they start talking about heaven and with the mennonites mm-hmm. um you know uh, yeah, the Mennonite stuff's fascinating. It is fascinating. You know, he wrote a book of nonfiction actually called Seek. 
and it was writer writing that he did for the New Yorker, you know, where he would go to places like Liberia that were totally fucked up and mm-hmm. interview Charles Taylor. And it was about, you know, panning for gold, you know, uh, to make the ring himself for his wife, for his, you know, second wife, I believe it was, or third wife. Like he was a, I mean, there was a, a reflexively mystical quality to the dude that, um, this movie gets right. And that scene I think is one of the scenes that gets it most right too, because he's looking up at the movie screen and what does he see there, you know, in the darkness, you know, worshiping on the presidium, but Samantha Morton, Mm -hmm. you know, what is the holy object in his life? It's, it's, it's a woman and it's love. It's another human being that isn't himself. And, you know, then you cut back and you realize, no, he's just watching some fucking movie. And Jack Black, if I remember correctly, is like, oh, we're on the edge of town. Like, yeah. they're just showing movies even though nobody's here. Like, it's not a mystical experience that you're having. This yeah. is, like, just some little forgotten place. And yet it is. And uh, She really is his North Star throughout yeah. this film. And, and he's reunited with her. I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit just because sure. it feels like this is maybe the biggest I think the biggest part of the movie is they're reunited. They have this beautiful moment together. They have, they have, you know, basically they, they, they have, it seems like about a week or so, a couple days in this hotel room together where they just have an emotional roller coaster of love and hate and frustration and what have you. He goes drinking one night. He comes back, crawls into bed with her. She, she kind of groans a little bit. Um, she seems slightly, you know, awoken, but he doesn't really connect with her. He wakes up the next morning. He finds a note that says, I took some pills. Wake me if you still want me, which is just horribly yeah. tragic. It's a suicide. It's not a, yeah. it's not a, um, she doesn't it's want not to overdose. be woke. Yeah. She doesn't, she, be she doesn't want to be woken up and she feels as though, you know, I guess that, he, that he doesn't love her or, or something to that effect. Um, and he tries to wake her up. Obviously, she's no longer alive. And then he just eats the note. That yeah. shot of him, that wide shot of him, where he's looking out the window, she's dead on the bed behind him, and he just yeah. eats the note. It's looking just like a morgue on a slab. Yeah, it's, or it's like a, yeah, yeah, body, a body on, on a slab. slab yeah. It's really just, yeah. It's, 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 a, I remember, it just goes to show like, we are programmed. We've seen so many movies, right? But like, you know, the second he walks into that room, something bad has happened. Right. And it's not, there isn't a music or anything. It's just, it's, it's, it just, it's that that moment in the movie. I mean, this is, you know, even though this movie doesn't conform to any typical structure, it still does hit some of these beats on your typical hero's journey. It's not really hero, but your typical kind of journey. And it is that, I think this happens around the two thirds point. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it does feel like this is your dark moment of the soul. It is. It's, it's definitely, it definitely does feel like the end of your act two. If there is one in this film, this is the moment. And, and he does sort of, he spirals a little bit. He does some mushrooms at this point. He sees Miranda July. He sees a bunch of cotton balls talking to him. Yeah. It's all real weird. And it definitely feels as though this is sort of the moment when he's going off the rails a little bit. Um, and then we get to, you know, we get to him at the old folks home. We get to him helping these people and, and the Amish, Amish or Mennonite, I'm not. They, I, yeah, I think they're Mennonite. Uh, yeah. Um, and her singing from, and, and this, this sort of obsession he has with this, with this married couple. Yeah. And what he sees that they have that I, I don't know. I, I will say that as, as beautiful and as arresting and interesting as I found this, I can't really figure out what his takeaway from them is. I read it as a desire to connect. Okay. Like I, I, I read that, you know, my whole thing on this is that it's a desire to connect. You have somebody who's, who's essentially a fuck up and a loner who like doesn't feel like they belong anywhere or to anyone. 
um, and fills that void with drugs. Yeah. Um, and briefly fills that void with this, you know, incredibly destructive relationship with a woman with, I don't know if it's severe depression or borderline personality disorder, but she ain't right. And that in the wake of her suicide feels, again, responsible and alone. And the things that give him redemption to that Mm -hmm. are twofold. One is this cautionary tale of meeting the old junkie in Dennis Hopper. Yep. You know, who literally... <laughs> he sees himself in that he guy He sees sure. himself yeah. in... And he's like, listen, man, like, you have survived all of this by the sheer stroke of luck. Yeah. And it's very true, right? Like, when you see the whole scene with Wayne where Samantha Morton saves him from overdosing, you know, I might... Whatever the, I, the line is, is like, if I get back on the wheel, I might not make it out with my, my arms and my legs or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, And then fills the void left by Samantha Morton by falling in love with a crippled woman in Holly Hunter mm-hmm. who has also lost... A tremendous everyone she's, ever, everyone loved. she's yeah. ever loved. Yeah. So that you realize, oh right, like the 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 antidote to pain, you know, that you're looking for, the connection to other people, which is the antidote to pain that you're looking for, that is available in number one, recognizing yourself as a cripple, and number two, recognizing, mm. you know, what is crippled in everyone else, and that connecting to that, mm-hmm. that there is still a place that, you know, that 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 you know, seeks a higher human experience. And I think that's what I read with the Mennonite runner and all of that, right? Because yeah. it ends with him touching her hair and being yeah. moved by the fact that she sings so much that he wants to go inside their house and gets mistaken as a intruder. But the response that the guy says is, you take know, what you need. take what you need, yeah. which is the most, you know, Christian, yeah. religious, you know. Like who cares about possessions? Who cares about yeah. possessions? Yeah. You're alive. And I think that's actually fundamentally why the Mennonite lady turns her head and lets him touch her hair. And, um, you huh. know, and that is, you know, what was the Roger Eber quote about what you were, you were reading from in the beginning about what mm-hmm. the bittersweet kind of note that this yep. ends on? Yep. It, it is. He finds connection and the movie is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and, and then you get to hear the, the, this beautiful song, um, whose lyrics I'm, I unfortunately don't have in front of me, but, um, it, it's, it's just a really, I don't know. It's just a really beautiful movie that, beautiful that ends on a, on a on a very hopeful note. I loved the relationship with Holly Hunter. I thought it was was poignant mm-hmm. and and two people that are just, you know, that have been through so much heartbreak and so much pain and yeah. suffering. Um, and I found the other side of it. She, I mean, she's perfectly cast too. That scene in the diner where yeah. she just talks about like the litany of men that she's loved yeah. and died. And she does it in such in a perfect Holly Hunter kind of like droll way that finds the humor in it. Like yeah. she, she, she can't hold on to all that pain. She's got to find some way through it. it. It's, it's, it's really beautiful stuff. Um, so, uh, should we rate this? Yeah. So we do a rating system. Great movie. Okay. Really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and, I, I'm weirdly affecting podcast too. <laughs> a very like affecting podcast. Journey. I feel like I'm back in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> like as you're describing, I'm starting yeah. to sit in here and it's kind of like wafting I'm over about, me. Yeah, I'm it's, just such and, a, yeah. it's an emotionally beautiful movie. It is. And I think that's, yeah. It's it's a real journey movie. It is. And, 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 oh, that, I felt that I mean? more than most. So many movies now feel like, yeah. especially modern movies, but a lot of movies we watch from 1999 feel like... I don't want to say nothing happens, nothing changes. It just kind of feels very, sli- very, very much of a slice of my yes. life yes. in that, like a slice of like, oh, this is an hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes. I'm I'm dedicating to this movie, where you know, three acts happen and everyone ends up where they end up. And this movie, more than most, feels lived in. It feels yes. like an experience. Yeah. Um, you feel like you've been through this journey with him shit. in a way that I can't say I felt of of any movie we've done thus far in '99. This journey this feels so original and its own 
the, the, you, I, I just, it, yeah. you, you feel up, you feel up inside it, um, in its own weird way. What do they stick <laughs> yeah. inside you? They stuck oh, us inside boy. this movie wow. in a way that, that is uh, exquisitely beautiful. <laughs> I cannot believe you stuck the landing on that. That is <laughs> so good. Yeah, there you go. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was going to shit on some other movies, but let's just keep yeah. it positive. Uh, so we, we rate these movies. We, okay. Zero to 99 is basically what we do. So we do three different ratings. We do a rating of what we thought of it in 99. Okay. We do a rating of what we thought of it before we sat down today to do this podcast, and then a rating after, as though the podcast might have potentially changed your grade okay. one way or the other. We'll go first. Give you a little bit of time to think about that for a second. Copy that. Uh, saw it in 99. I'd say I gave it probably like a 78 or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, it didn't hit me as hard as maybe I would have wanted to. And my friend loved it so much that I was just sort of like, I don't know, it just didn't really connect with me. Watched it a couple nights ago. I'd probably give it an 88 now. Um, I think it just... 88 before podcast. Before podcast. Uh, I thought it was... I was just... I was floored by it. I texted you and I was like, I forgot how fucking great this movie was. Um, after this podcast, I give it a 90. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's just... It, it's... There's nothing like it that we've done so far. Um, there's nothing like it, period, quite honestly. It's, it, is, it is its own animal. Um, and it is such a great window into how deep the bench of amazing character actors were in, in the late, in the 90s in general, and how there were movies like this that we got to see those you know, really flourish. Um, and I wish we got more of them. Um, my... I, I saw this in 99, and uh, I think I saw it a bunch of times in 99, never all the way through, but I think I'd basically seen every piece of it. I think this was essentially a stoner movie for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I never thought it was remarkable. I'd say like a 60. Yeah. Um, and to that point, it was not a movie I was looking forward to. It was a movie I was not looking forward to when I heard you had picked it. Um, I figured... <laughs> I did, sorry. No, I think, no. I, 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 I've always respected you from afar, so I assumed that there was something more there yeah. than, than I realized. Um, that being said, I was not particularly excited to watch it. I thought it was going to be a bit of a slog. Yeah. Not a slog. Incredible. <laughs> um, I've, over the course of the podcast, it's only grown. Before the podcast, 82. Mm. Right now, ninety. I was exactly. Where I was yeah. going to say exactly what you said. Ninety. I want to make one more point about how you said it's not like anything else. Um, it's not like anything else. I agree with that. But what I appreciate about it is it's not like one of those movies that sets out to say you're going to see something you've never seen before. It's kind of found a a like a like a light in the spectrum that had never been shown. Yeah, yeah. It's not outside the spectrum, but it's kind of found this perfect little spot where it's like, we've never actually fit a movie right here in this sweet spot. So it felt very right to me. It wasn't alienating or, or disorienting in any way. I really, really love this movie. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Gideon, thank for you choosing for, it. Oh, truth, yeah. Truthfully, I mean, thank you for... Don't know when we would have done it otherwise. So. I, yeah, no, it was, it was funny. It was fun to go through that list, and I thought, you know, this could be... I, I, think, this, I think this movie is a gem. Yep. Um, I think at the time, I was like you. I think when I saw this, I give it a 70. I think, you know, 7 out of 10, right? Like, yep. I, I don't think I fully appreciated the subtlety of this movie. It's such a tonal movie, and I think tone is one of the things that is hardest to get right. Upon rewatching it, I think I eighty five, eighty eight, like something like that. Yeah. Like because, uh, the, yeah, there was just so much more going on than than I had remembered. I thought yeah, there's going to be a good discussion piece about you know again, sure, yeah, the ninety cinema and all that. Yeah, yeah ninety cinema and like the kind of character actors and, and the work that they would do. But I, I want to give it 
I think if you give it anything more than a 90, you do it a disservice because it's, it is supposed to be a shambling and imperfect, yeah, you yeah. know, Im- imperfect thing. But I think give it an A minus, man. Give it an yeah. 90. I'm with you guys. <laughs> this is a, this is a lovely, perfectly, wonderfully imperfect, independent film. Um, it deserves a rewatch with you and the ones you love. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Oddly anthemic, oddly emotional. Um, and Alison McLean come back to us. Seriously, right? She's done some, she's done some episodes of TV from here, here and there, but, but yeah. I would yeah. love to see her make another movie. Um, thank you so much for being thank on you here. Guys. Will you guys. It's so back? much fun. Yeah, Will you come awesome. back Any seriously? Time. Okay. Any single time. We'll, I, th- there's a couple movies that, as you were talking, I was like, I think that this might be, I'd love to explore this. You film had a few, so. you had a few other ones on the list. So let's yeah. see, let's, we, we wanna, let's we have a discussion out. and see where we'll we find can something go. else. Plus we're doing, you know, some TV, we're doing some other stuff too. Plenty stuff about youth culture, current youths. I know you know all about the youths. Yeah. Holler at We would absolutely love to. So I am at PM Iscove on Instagram and Twitter. We are at podcast like 99 what are you you're on twitter right yeah i'm getting you go there you go on twitter mm-hmm. and you're at nybart All 50 um, of my followers next week that. we are doing house on haunted hill oh yeah that'll be dope with uh ira madison the third uh big uh big guy on on twitter and various podcasts he's got Former keep it TV news alum. oh really that true yeah, came in after that's too funny kept that torch burning he's he's amazing i he's, love him he's a writer on the show right now uh is he what i'm not is. sure what he, he is, is right now. but i don't remember what it is he'll he's, tell us i love him he's great we can't wait to talk about that weird horror movie that is house on haunted hill yeah fortunately um, not the haunting so we don't have to yeah we don't binge have to talk the about netflix movie yeah, the netflix show uh and do all that so uh next week house on haunted hill uh uh, please rate, review, subscribe, and thank you very much for listening. Well, thank you, guys. Like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 